I mentioned the other night that uh, Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path of Practice offers three trainings for the uh, gradual uh, elimination and eradication of the of suffering and the causes of suffering from our heart or from our mind, from our life. And I mentioned that the first of these was the purification of the intention before speaking or acting, which we're doing here by practicing the precepts. And when we're able to do that relatively consistently, then we get to feel a certain level of integrity and uh, harmony within ourselves and harmony in our relationships with others because we're clear on our motivation in speaking and acting and we're uh, confident that we are not acting intentionally to cause anyone harm. And in addition, we're not acting in dissonance with our own internal appraisal of what is skillful and unskillful. So this brings a great uh, feeling of calmness, stability, integrity, uh, and cohesion, a kind of cohesion uh, in, our, in our mind, in our life. The second training is a training in mindfulness, which purifies the mind moment by moment of any of the defilements that obsess our mind. And we don't have to look very far to discover the obsessing mind. You just take a look and you'll see plenty to, to work with. But mindfulness either of a chosen object, like practicing metta, or practicing even chanting, or practicing mindfulness of whatever arises in your experience, that level of mindfulness, or that practice of mindfulness, when there is some momentum to it, keeps those obsessive thoughts those obsessing defilements out of the mind for as long as we can sustain that uh, continuity to the mindfulness. And this gives us uh, a taste of the mind that's not agitated, the mind that's not obsessed, the mind that's not distressed with uh, thoughts. And this is a another experience of the benefits of, of mindfulness in that uh, we feel internally calm. Where the mind feels calm, the body feels calm in response to that. And uh, this is also a great confirmation of the value of awareness and our own capacity to uh, practice in such a way that we get to see for ourselves the benefit of awareness training.
third training is the development of wisdom, which is the practice of vipassana or insight, which purifies our understanding. It's not just purifying our mind, not just purifying our speech and behavior, but it's taking a look at the beliefs that we have in the mind about the nature of reality. What do we believe about the nature of reality? What do we believe about the nature of ourself, of this body, of this mind, of time, of uh, practice, of liberation? And it's looking at those beliefs and assumptions and wrong beliefs and hopes uh, expectations, all sorts of things that kind of flood in the flood in the mind when we start talking about the nature of reality. It's looking at them and purifying those beliefs of any wrong idea, any unskillful idea. And when I say wrong or unskillful, I mean any idea which that will inevitably lead to suffering. And so it's a very comprehensive review of uh, beliefs and thoughts and assumptions that for the most part in our ordinary life we are completely unaware of. And so it takes a pretty powerful uh, continuity of awareness and insight to even expose our beliefs to ourselves and then to correct them or to find the understanding that is more appropriate in not leading to suffering. We can do a lot of groundwork, preparation. We can get a lot of clues as to the work of the wisdom practice by reading books, listening to speakers, uh, discussing among ourselves. Uh, some of us are very skillful at internal reflection, just using logic and rational thought to arrive at deductive and inductive conclusions which are powerful for cognitively reframing our understanding of what's it all about, where are we going with this. But it isn't until we take all that we've heard, all that we've thought, all that we've discussed, all that we've discovered through that kind of reflection and bring it into practice here and start observing the way the mind-body process unfolds that we're able to really see where our deeply held beliefs and assumptions are dissonant with our aspiration to be free of suffering. And so what this practice of insight involves, uh, not because anyone is mandating it, but just because it's the very nature of this practice to discover all of the sources of suffering in your life. 
Now there's no way to discover the sources of suffering without feeling suffering. And, and I'm sure you can confirm that. <laughs> we have spoken over the years, and we've mentioned here at this retreat too, our teacher, uh, Sayadaw Upandita in Burma, an elder monk, who is, uh, as we have relayed, a very demanding um, taskmaster, but not out of uh, spite or just being a hard guy. It's because he understands the mind. He really understands the mind. He has guided tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in this practice. He knows all the tricks that the mind is going to play on you. He knows all the hidden spots of beliefs and the last holdout, the last thing you're going to hang on to before you finally say, oh, to heck with it. I'm, not, I'm just going to, I give up. There. And he knows that. He knows it before you do. He knows that about the mind. The mind is not, you know, the mind in this body process and the mind in that body process, not so different. Yeah, there's some different personal content, but the way it functions, pretty much the same. And he knows that. And so his, his aim in guiding you in practice is to get you to discover, to investigate this mind-body process in such a way that you will discover suffering. And he's very effective at it. <laughs> because it's only when we see for ourselves, this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is where and how I suffer. That we're then able to do anything about it. Well, some people just, you know, just aren't ready for that or just don't really want to practice in that way. And so they have some reasons for not practicing with him. And, and among the complaints I have heard is that he's not very compassionate. He's not very kind and joyful and encouraging and uh, just kind of like that. And I don't see that at all. Uh, you know, it's not like you're going to go have a good time with him. But I think anyone who has the courage to help you see your suffering, even the suffering that you do not yet know you have, is being very compassionate to you in a way beyond what you understand or what we understand to be compassionate. Because he knows there is the cause of suffering in the mind, in the heart not yet discovered, and he will encourage you to investigate this process, mind-body process, until you discover it. Now, it's going to be painful. It's going to be suffering. It's going to, you're going to struggle. You're going to feel, <sighs> dang. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll get to address that suffering and uproot it from the mind not living in oblivion about it, but actually handling it, at which time you're then free of that suffering. 
And that is the act of compassion. The act of compassion is to help relieve suffering. And so if someone can encourage you to practice in such a way that you understand how to practice, you discover suffering, and you find the way to the end of that suffering, that is supreme compassion. Even though it doesn't have that velvety, soft, comfy, cushy feeling. But it does relieve suffering, and that is compassion. So Sayadaw knows that there are multiple layers of delusion, as he calls it. Multiple layers of delusion, which can only be uncovered, discovered, uh, through continuity of practice. And his understanding is that th there is a progression through these uh, layers of delusion, which is pretty predictable. And if you practice with him, you will, you will see how predictable it is. The Buddha, when asked, why are some people healthy and some not? Why are some people live a long time and some die young? Why are some people really wise and some people really dull and, and not very wise? And when the Buddha, in speaking about karma, talked about those who are wise, he said that those who are wise have asked a lot of questions in their life, have asked a lot of questions, have investigated the, the understanding of everything, anything. And out of that questioning uh, of themselves and others and uh, investigation, they come to understand things as they are. And this is wisdom. Well, this gives us a clue as to how to practice skillfully. Because if it is wisdom or understanding which ultimately purifies our understanding, uproots the defilements from the mind, then how are we going to practice to develop this wisdom? And to be curious, to investigate, to ask a lot of questions of ourselves, of our teachers, of our practice. This is the way. Now, I know when I started practice, I was looking for relief. You know, calm, space out. <laughs> Good enough for me. You know, I just want to sit still and relax. You know, kind of de-stress, kind of unplug, get away from it all. And for a while, that was the goal, and there was some success, and that was fine. And in fact, that's actually necessary, knowing how to uh, kind of calm down. But ultimately, it's not very satisfying because it doesn't last very long. You know, as soon as you go back into the mainstream of life, or walk into work, or meet your partner, there it is again. It's all in your face. So it's. Uh, 
You need something else. You need to understand things differently, not just learn how to unplug and get away from it all. So if we have that level of curiosity and interest to know things as they are, then let the chips fall where they may, you know, uh, if we really want to be free of suffering then we have to commit to that investigation, that willingness to face things as they are. As we grow in practice, as we grow in understanding and, and develop the practice, the seven factors of awakening, or the seven factors of enlightenment, become the, the vehicle uh, and the, the, the lens through which we want to view our practice, because these are the factors of mind that get developed in practice and are the foundation for liberation. And of those seven factors, three of them are energizing, three of them are tranquilizing, and one of them is the balancer. Of course, the balancer is mindfulness. But the three energizing factors are energy, joy, or delight, interest, and investigation. Investigation is an energizing factor of mind. It really, it's not that it agitates the mind or stirs up the mind, but it is an active element of mind. The tranquilizing factors are calm, concentration, and equanimity. But tonight I want to speak about investigation in practice. I want to speak about it in terms of how, why, why do we investigate, what's the benefit of investigation, how do we investigate, and what do we investigate. You know, there are, we live, in an, we live in an age when anyone can say anything and it'll get broadcast to the world. And it doesn't have to be true or accurate or useful or beneficial or anything. But if it's spoken well and they're charismatic, it'll get a wide audience. So there are a lot of teachings out there spiritual teachings of one sort or another in all the traditions that are suspect. <laughs> How are we going to know what the path of practice is and what the goal or liberation actually looks like? How are we going to know? Are we going to listen to a contemporary teacher? Are we going to listen to a historical teacher? Are we going to read the old ancient books? Are we going to go to the words of the Buddha? Or are we just going to sit on our butt and watch our own mind and assume we know, or that we'll recognize it when it arrives? This is not an insignificant question because, well, what do we do? How do we know? How do we know what the path of practice is? How do we know what the goal of practices. How do we know what liberation actually is about? I mean, how, do you think you're going to recognize it? 
it's hard enough to recognize your breath. <laughs> you know, I mean, really. So, or to recognize what's skillful in the mind or what's unskillful in the mind. Now we're talking about freedom from suffering. Do we even know what suffering is? Some levels, of course. But the end of suffering, what's that going to look like? So we want to be humble enough to recognize that we might not know and do some search. And there's many places to look, but of course what we teach here and what we offer here is the teachings of the Buddha as we've heard them and practiced them and realized them. So I'm going to cut to the chase and that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. <laughs> Saito Utejaniya is a, a Burmese monk and he's also a Buddhist in the, in the Buddhist tradition. And he says, the purpose of practice is to grow in wisdom because it is not you who removes the defilements from the mind, from our understanding, but it is the job of wisdom to do that. So the purpose of practice, ultimately, is to grow in wisdom. Awareness, or mindfulness, of course, overcomes ignorance. When we're aware, we see what's going on. But we may understand it wrongly. And so it's wisdom that understands things either rightly or wrongly. Wisdom understands things rightly. But it's awareness that has to, has to bring the experience into view so that wisdom can then look at it to understand it. So in our practice to investigate in order to develop wisdom, we investigate three things. We investigate the object, meaning the present moment's experience. We investigate our practice, how we practice, why we practice, whether we're practicing. And then we look to investigate and to discover how we understand this experience. So we have to know the present moment. We have to know what we're doing with the present moment. We have to know what the present moment means or what its value is or how to understand it. So the first arena of investigation is the object, the present moment's experience. Well, we've had a lot of experiences today. We've, we've looked at the body, the mind, the environment, each other. We've looked at pleasant, unpleasant, gross, subtle, uh, known and unknown, uh, pleasant, unpleasant. We've, we've seen it all, or a lot. The Buddha had a way of codifying all that we see in the present moment. And he called it the five aggregates. It's the five piles of stuff. It's the five groups of experiences that we have. One is the body. You know, anything about the body, is there's a lot of it. There's a lot of body experiences that we get to experience. And then he said there are four activities of mind that we also want to be aware of. And these four activities of mind are the ability of the mind to feel experience. It is the mind that feels 
what is going on. I don't mean emotional feel. I mean feels, the, the flavor, the texture, the taste, the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the whatever it is, the roughness, the smoothness of experience. And this whole arena of feeling is important to attend to, pay attention to, because if it's pleasant, subtle, uh, easy to recognize, we like it. And if it's unpleasant and coarse and rough and dissonant in some way with our expectations or our preference, then we don't like it. And so feelings directly condition liking and disliking, attachment and aversion. The second mental activity to be aware of is how we perceive experience, what we perceive, what we recognize of an experience. And this is important because when we look around the room, everything we see we recognize. We recognize people, floor, doors, windows, you know, you recognize the speaker and the listeners and students and teachers. We recognize everything. There isn't anything in this room that we don't recognize. Right? There are vast terrains of the mind we have not yet seen or recognized. Vast. And so we want to be able to look at this activity of mind, of recognizing, of taking note of the distinctiveness of experience because in our investigation of the mind and discovery of the mind, we're going to come across things that we've never seen before. We want to recognize that. We want to be able to pull that out of our kind of the background of experience and say, this is something new. I've never, did you ever, did you ever taste a Chico? Anybody here ever taste a Chico? Oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> you know, a Chico is a little fruit. It's about the size of a kiwi. It's about the same color. Inside, it's a kind of like a cinnamon colored, soft, sweet. It's got about three to five little black seeds, a little smaller than an almond. And it tastes like cinnamon with syrup on it. It is the most exquisite. It is the most exquisite taste you've ever had. You know what I'm saying? No, you don't. You have no idea what that tastes like because you never tasted it. But it's there. And we can't know that until we actually taste it, no matter how much you read about it, how, much, how many pictures you look at it, how much I talk about it. Even if you see it in the grocery store, you still haven't got the taste until you actually taste it there's that kind of terrain in the mind. We haven't tasted it yet. And so the path of practice is to uncover, recover, discover all the flavors in the mind that is possible to taste. One of which is liberation. So we want to become aware of this functioning of the mind that is able to recognize what has never yet been recognized. 
and you're not going to buy it in a grocery store. You're going to be sitting on your cushion and you're going to see something in your mind you've never seen before. And you have to recognize it. You have to, to learn how to recognize that. Then the other activities of the mind that we want to, um, and not difficult to discover, is all of the mental states. All of the wholesome and unwholesome mental states that have been rolling through your mind today. The unwholesome ones, pretty obvious. Anger, frustration, disappointment, fear, jealousy, craving, wanting, not wanting, along with some of the wholesome ones, calm, concentration, equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, awareness itself, confidence, joy. There's, well, there's a vast terrain right there. And these are some of the experiences that we discover. Uh, when we practice, we really step out of our habits. And actually, we should make it a point to step out of our habits. You know, if, as Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda, always tie your left shoe first. And after he perfected that, where he did it, every time tying his left shoe first, he said, okay, now tie your right shoe first. It's break up those habits of mind so that you can be in the present moment to see things as they really are. Or if you always thread your belt from left to right, then do it from right to left. Or if you always wear your watch on your left hand, put it on your right hand, or whatever it is. Because when we do things habitually, it doesn't take doing something, what, two, three, four times, and then we are numb to it. How many times have you brushed your teeth this lifetime? Can you be aware of brushing your teeth? It is unbelievably difficult. <laughs> it really is, because it's so habitual. You know, we just kind of, or if you've got one of those electric ones, it's even less. <laughs> you just stand there, vibrate. And the mind is elsewhere. And while the mind is elsewhere, you can be sure it is not aware and not wise. So this is our area of investigation, investigating the body, investigating the mind, to see what is going on moment to moment. And it's not like we got to do austerity practice. You don't have to go out in the jungle. You don't have to go sit on an iceberg. You can just sit right here and watch what's going on in the body. Watch what's going on in the mind. In order to discover things as they really are, in order to discover the way it really is in the mind, we have all sorts of fantasies or heavily edited, uh, heavily sculpted, sense of ourself, of how it is for me. I'm sure you all know. The person we present to the world to be confirmed as me is only a partial presentation. We are so heavily sculpted to fit an idea of ourself. Our mind, our bodies, our aspirations, our accomplishments, our achievements, that it's unrecognizable to anybody but you. And so, of course, in our practice of just being present with the way things are, all of the skeletons are going to come out of the closet. We are going to get to see every skeleton we've stuffed in the closet, hoping that nobody gets to see. And we have to look at that.
And so we are going to discover things about ourselves we'd rather not know. As someone said, self-knowledge is not always good news. <laughs> In fact, it isn't good news <laughs> most of the time. But nevertheless, that is the work. That's the work that we, that we do in, in looking at these objects, the nature of the body, the soundboard of the mind, the natural functioning of the mind, the natural activities of the mind, the nature of mind itself, and to try to see it from, to try to see each of these from an unfiltered, undistorted perspective, just how it really is. So it's difficult because we think we know. We think we know our body, we think we know our mind, we think we know the way it is here. We've lived with ourselves for so long, but in fact, we do not. We have this very, very distorted view of ourselves. And when we get in there and start paying attention, we have to be willing to acknowledge, this is not what I thought. This is not how I've been taught to believe this body is or this mind is. And you don't want to be surprised by anything because it's all in there. Everything that you've ever seen or done or wished you'd done or hadn't done, it's in there. And we've got to see it. We will see it. And this takes a lot of courage. It takes a tremendous amount of courage because uh, it's not easy. But if we're gently persevering, we will and can develop the capacity to uncover the nature of the body and the nature of the mind. When I was a monk in Burma, I remember when I took on brushing my teeth as a practice. And it took weeks. It took weeks to, to finally get to where I could consistently uh, brush my teeth and know what the experience of brushing my teeth was. And at, at about the same time, I was, I was a monk, and monks wear robes. And the robes are nothing but big pieces of cloth, something like blankets, one wrapped around the lower half and one wrapped around the upper half. And you kind of got to keep yourself covered modestly and, you know, appropriately, depending on where you are. And so there's always this constant need to, you know, adjust and tug and tighten and, and roll and, you know, it's just like, you know, you just, you just got to do this kind of like uh, robe dance you know, <laughs> to, to keep them on and to keep it, to keep it. <laughs> and you get used to it, you know, after a couple of months, and you get used to it, and you just do it unconsciously. Well, that's not good enough. And I remember uh, standing uh, around uh, my teacher's cottage waiting for the, for the lunch bell so, dozens of times, and I'd be standing there being mindful, aware, I thought, and I'd be adjusting my shoulder, and, do, do, do. and someone, one of Saido's, lieutenants would come up behind me and say, do you notice that shrug? Do you notice that tug? Do you notice that adjustment of your foot? No, 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 I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. But because they kept asking me over and over and over again, eventually I got it. 
You can't let anything go by unnoticed. Every little shrug, every little tilt, every little adjustment, every little shift from the left foot to the right foot, if you pay that close of attention, you will discover terrain of the mind you haven't seen before. And all it is is paying attention. It's not like something you can't do. It's that we fall into habits. Take it too casually. But it's that level of continuity which will expose uh, the nature of the mind to you. I notice that when we go in the dining room, some people have their favorite place that they sit every meal, and many of us don't. But along that table, um, the three tables in a row that kind of face out uh, over, over the looking in that direction, why is it people always sit on the inside side to look out and not the outside side to look in? For those of you who sit along that inside side, <laughs> why? why? Do you know why? Look, look, look carefully. Just well, all of us. Look carefully at. I mean, look around the diner. You go in. You get your plate. And you look around. What is it that chooses where you sit? What thought? What belief? What preference? What desire? What do you know? Look. It's important to know why you sit where you sit. So these are the objects, these are the momentary experiences that we need to investigate in our practice. The, third, uh, the second area of investigation in practice is practice itself, how we are practicing. Because you know we hear the instruction, and more or less, and then we hear it in the morning, and then we've got 24 hours to do something with it. And it's easy to forget what, what they said in the morning. Does anybody remember what Kamala said this morning? So what'd you do all day? Did you practice? How do you know you practiced? What did you practice? Did you practice well? Did you follow instructions? Okay. So the, what is it that we need to investigate about practice? One way of investigating practice is to remind ourselves that in every moment something is being known. Every moment something is being known. And then to ask ourselves in each moment what is being known. And I like to, uh, I like to suggest that you only give yourself a one-word answer. What is being known? Breath, sound, ache, thinking, discomfort, boredom, sleepiness. Why? Because as soon as we start giving ourselves more than a single word response to the question, we start 
explaining, justifying, figuring out, and telling ourselves a story about the experience rather than just mindfully recognizing the experience. And there's a huge difference between narrating your life and noting your life. Huge. And for the most part, we're telling ourselves a story about our life into which we weave every experience we have. You know, nothing goes by, nothing escapes your attention throughout the day that isn't woven into the story of your life. That narrative has to be seen for what it really is. It is just a story. It is just a story. Now the narrative might be a happy one, it might be a sad one, it might be a painful one. We've got all kinds of stories about ourselves, but they're just stories. Yes, they were conditioned in part by momentary experiences which are long gone. And yet, because we've still kept them in the mind and we're still hanging on to them and we're still massaging them for a story, we're stuck. We're stuck in the past. We're stuck in old stories about our life. Hardly any room actually live this moment. We can barely turn the volume down enough to get here before we start weaving it into the story. My life. Ah. So how are we going to make room in the mind for this moment as it really is without it being just an addendum to the story. So in every moment something's being known, ask yourself what? Ask yourself also, is there awareness of this moment? Ask yourself often, frequently, is there is awareness present? Because that is a great reminder of how to be. Just asking yourself the question, is awareness present, will make you aware. And then can you remind yourself also that it does not matter at all what you're aware of. It doesn't matter. Not one bit. You can be aware of a physical, a mental, a gross, a subtle, a familiar, a novel experience an inner, an outer, it doesn't matter. Because in any moment that there is mindful awareness of anything, it's a moment without defilements in the mind. That's the goal, the moment without defilement in the mind. Because when there's no defilements in the mind, ultimately or eventually we'll understand, we'll begin to understand things as they truly are. But when defilements are in the mind, the very nature of defilements is we don't see things clearly. We don't understand things correctly. We spin them to our favor most of the time. So we want to remind ourselves in our practice to investigate 
whether there is some preference for an, an experience that you're not having or whether there's some resistance to an experience you're having. If there is, look at that. There, there really is no reason to prefer one experience over the other. And it isn't until we don't prefer one experience over the other that we actually get the momentum to see things as they really are. Another way of investigating practice is to ask yourself, what is the attitude in the mind towards this object that is being known? So here's the object, it's arising, it's a physical thing, it's a mental thing, whatever it is, it's arising, and here's the awareness of it. They arise together. Awareness of object, awareness of object. But often, in between the awareness and the object is a filter. And it can be blue, it can be red, it can be aversive, it can be green, it can be desire, it can be envy, it can be fear, it can be depression, it can be when any of those filters arise in the view plane between awareness and the object, we need to recognize that. That is investigating practice. What is the quality of the relationship to the experience that's being known? Of course, sometimes there are defilements. Sometimes there are wholesome states of mind. Be a lot of joy. There can be a lot of appreciation. It can be a lot of confidence. It can be a lot of gratitude. It can be a lot of loving kindness. Sometimes they arise. We want to recognize them. When the filter is one of liking or disliking, attachment or aversion, we call this the hard brick wall in practice because we can't get through it. We have to see it, we have to be with it, we have to really uh, acknowledge it, because it's a defilement, it's a defiled state of mind. But there are soft brick walls in practice. When practice becomes smooth, and we become confident, or we become calm, or we become less reactive, or we become very light, light-minded, or we become very loving, we become, we recognize clarity, or we have some level of insight or, or a sense of like really deeply understanding something. And we take delight in that. This is the soft brick wall. Skill in practice inevitably results in wholesome states of mind, confidence, clarity, tranquility, non-reactivity, etc. But as soon as they arise, it's what we've been looking for, and so we're delighted with it. That delight is a defilement. Dang. <laughs> Gosh, darn. Um, so we just need to be aware that delighting in good practice stops further practice. So how can we recognize the momentum of practice, recognize that practice is good, 
and not take delight in it. Well, we have to take note of all of the experiences of good practice, recognizing confidence when it arises, calm when it arises, non-reactivity when it arises, loving kindness when it arises, because they are just other momentary objects being known. They're not you, they're not yours, they're not how it's going to be forever, they're just momentary. And in that, we start to undermine the, the tendency to taking delight in them. Randy Pausch, who uh, gave the last lecture, it's on online if you haven't seen it, it's really fantastic. He says, brick walls are there to reveal how badly you really want something. We're going to hit walls. We're going to hit brick walls. We're going to hit hard brick walls and soft brick walls. And it's just a reminder, if we understand them correctly, that if you really want what's beyond that wall, you have to, you have to look at that wall. You have to come in contact with that wall. You have to understand that wall. Or as the uh, English woman who spent 12 years in the cave in Nepal or Tibet, uh, Tenzin Palmo, I think, huh? can't remember. I think Tenzin Palmo. Uh, she said, you know, in, in, in Dharma practice, there are no obstacles, only opportunities, if you understand it correctly. No obstacle. Nothing that you meet. Nothing that you come across in your practice is an obstacle, but rather an opportunity to develop your practice. I have a quote here I want to read. Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, great Tibetan uh, teacher of the last century, said, simply by turning on the light, you can instantly destroy the darkness. Likewise, even a rather simple analysis of ego clinging and the afflictive emotions elements, can make them collapse. By suppression, we may temporarily subdue our afflictive emotions, all those defilements, but only an investigation of their true nature will completely eradicate them. So we want to be careful not to just suppress the defilements, but to take a look at them when they arise so that we begin to really understand their nature. So we want to, I think welcome is a little strong, but I think we want to be respectful when the defilements arise and to see them as an opportunity to really gain an understanding that is hard to get. And so to observe them with the curiosity, with the investigation to understand how these afflictive emotions, defilements, establish themselves in the mind how they arise, what they do to the mind, how they feel in the body, how they feel in the mind, how long they last, what they cause you to think about, how they affect your willingness to practice. You don't have to ask yourself all these questions, but if you observe 
the defilements when they arise and you observe them carefully and the whole experience around them with interest, you'll be able to answer those questions. And it is this kind of knowledge of the defilements that we will need in order to adjust our understanding to be more skillful. Just getting rid of the defilements momentarily is not enough. It's not. Awareness can do that. But it's through understanding them, being willing to hang out with them, to really grok their nature, and to understand. This is the nature of fear. This is the nature of desire. This is the nature of anger, irritation, impatience, whatever, whatever you've seen today. But it takes courage, and it takes patience, it takes humility to be willing to just hang there with, uh, with these states of mind, because they're not pleasant. They're not pleasant. And so when we recognize that, we have a choice to either follow our, frankly, unskillful conditioning to avoid unpleasantness, or to be willing to face the unpleasantness of the defilements. They're going to come anyway. Why not willingly accept, okay, here it is, let me be with this thing. It's going to be unpleasant whether I welcome it or not. So with a welcoming attitude, then there's more to be learned. There's more, there's less resistance, there's more honesty in the mind in seeing, oh, this is the nature of this state of mind. There are many um, ways that we undermine our practice through our efforts. And I call them attached agendas or making a project out of practice. So often, we attach some agenda to our practice. I'm willing to be mindful as long as it doesn't X, Y, Z, fill in your blank. I'm willing to look at this as long as it's not painful. I'm willing to, you know, uh, the reason I'm doing this is to, you know, burn up my bad karma. No, it's not. Or, I'm doing this because I want to confirm what I read in the book. Don't waste your time. <laughs> but those, those beliefs, those thoughts, those ideas slip in to the mind and start contaminate, <laughs> contaminating our practice. So we want to keep an eye on them. Whenever you find yourself with an agenda in your practice. Look at it, really. Is this serving your practice? Is this really a support for your practice? Or is it just an entanglement in your practice? There are dozens of unskillful ways of holding practice, or the idea of practice, that we will, we will discover as we look.
seeking to confirm what we've heard or read from others, having an expectation or anticipation that practice is going to be pleasant. That's, that's a good one to get rid of quickly, <laughs> because it doesn't. Or sometimes, you know, ev even after hearing a talk like this on investigation, we can get the idea that investigation is all about figuring it out. It isn't. Don't, don't try to figure it out. Investigation is really about observing carefully enough to understand things as they really are. But oftentimes, we'll be deep in the midst of some drama going on in the mind with this attitude of, I got to figure this out. And that's an attachment, that's a, an entanglement in practice that's not and not helpful, not useful. So take a look at practice. Investigate how you're practicing. What is it that's motivating your practice? What is it that's become the kind of the temporary or immediate goal in your practice? Let those go. Understand that practice is to observe in order to understand. Full stop. To observe in order to understand. And as we observe, we will understand. But as soon as we get entangled in it, trying to make something of the observation, we distort our practice, corrupt our practice. And finally, in investigation, we want to investigate our understanding. How do we understand this moment's experience? What does it mean to you? What, what value are you assigning to this? What uh, story are you making up about this? What are you telling yourself about this? It's just, remember, it's just an object that has, aris has arisen due to its own causes and conditions that's being observed for a temporary, for a, a brief moment. That's it. That's the story. Anything else you add quite likely got wrong understanding in there. Okay. How clean can you keep your understanding of this is what's going on. Will Rogers, that great Dharma teacher of the uh, <laughs> early American <laughs> experiment, said, it isn't what we don't know that gives us trouble. It's what we know that ain't so. It's not what you don't know that's, that's causing the problem. It's what you think you know that isn't so that causes problems. We have so many assumptions about ourselves, about practice, about the way it is in the world, and they're not true. And we can only discover it if we're willing to see things as they are without a story, without explaining, without figuring it out, without rationalizing it. And only then will we begin to see, oh, this is the way it really is. This is the way to investigate the object or the present moment's experience, the, the way we're practicing, how our practice is going, 
and the understanding of practice because ultimately it's refining our understanding of experience that is going to free the mind from understanding things wrongly and that understanding things wrongly is the source of suffering. Saito Tejaniya says, the purpose of practicing is to grow in wisdom. Growth in wisdom can only happen once we're able to recognize, understand, and transcend the defilements. In order to test your limits and to grow, you have to give yourself the opportunity to face the defilements. Without facing life's challenges, your mind will forever remain weak. So let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.